The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Lisa Pressman, and I am so thrilled to have on this episode a conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse, who just published a book called The Amen Effect, Ancient Wisdom to Mend Our Broken Hearts and World. And oh my goodness, this is such a profound book. I was so touched by it. And I just thought, I have to share this with all of you. It doesn't matter if you are spiritual, if you are not spiritual, if you are religious, or if you are not religious, the teachings and ways of talking through joy and grief and all of the things that are going on with experiencing the world in its current state and still being able to experience just a casual, fun time with your kids, or how your kids might experience joy while they're at their grandmother's funeral. Things that we just have trouble talking about, and sometimes you just want a wise person to help you through it. Okay, so Sharon Browse is an incredible rabbi. She takes spiritual work and just makes it so accessible. I am not a person who typically finds this super accessible. And I was so touched by our conversation, I had to stop and kind of wipe my eyes. So I'm really excited to share it with you. If you enjoy this episode, I would love for you to just tell me what you liked in the reviews. Give it a five-star rating. And if you didn't enjoy it or you have anything constructive to tell me, you can just DM me privately on at Raising Good Humans podcast. That way we just keep things nice and supportive. And of course, there's one more week. I'm freaking out. My book is coming out, The Five Principles of Parenting, Your Essential Guide to Raising Good Humans. I'm so excited to give this to you. I am so excited that this moment is here. Please order, if you order it by January 22nd, because it comes out January 23rd, then just go ahead and email the five principles of parenting at gmail.com, or you can just go to my website, dreliza.com submit your receipt, and then you're going to get invited to a big Zoom book club so that we can all talk once you have the book in your hands. I cannot wait. This book really is kind of a love story between me and an ancient rabbinic text that I accidentally encountered when I was in rabbinical school looking for something else in the Mishnah, which is an ancient Jewish code of law codified in the year 220 CE, so very, very old. And it it happened to be in this fairly obscure section that was describing the architectural layout of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And I came to this text and I just could not figure it out. It didn't make sense to me. And I sat with it. I struggled with it. And finally, I don't know why, but I got up and I photocopied the page, folded it up and put it back in my book on the shelf, then moved from New York to Los Angeles, had some kids built a community, buried people, married people, helped people through divorce, you know, like really lived life with the community. And one day I opened up the book and that page fell out. 
And I looked at it and I just started to cry. And I thought, oh my God, I understand exactly what this text is saying. I just couldn't have understood it before. And so here's the framework that the rabbis offer us, that when people used to go up on pilgrimage to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, they would come from all around the land and they would ascend to Jerusalem and then they would ascend the steps and go through this grand entryway and they would turn to the right and they would circle around the perimeter of the courtyard of the Temple Mount, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people at once. And then they would exit essentially right where they came in. So I always envision Mecca. I envision the Hajj, like what it looked, because that's our kind of contemporary understanding of what it looks like to be in this mass of human beings engaged in the sacred work of pilgrimage and circling and then exiting. Except the text says, for somebody with a broken heart, that person would enter through the same entryway, but they would turn to the left instead of to the right. And they would walk against the tide. And every single person walking from the right who sees that person would stop and say, Malach, what happened to you? What's your story? And that person would respond saying, I am a mourner. My father just died. Or my best friend is sick. Or I'm worried about my kid. And then the people who are going from right to left would have to, they would have to stop and offer a blessing. They would say, may God give you comfort. May you find consolation, et cetera. And then they would go on. And every single person who passes the person walking from left to right would actually have to stop and give them this blessing. And what I realized now as a pastor, as a rabbi, you know, having, having served in a community now for 10 years at this time was that this ritual, the rabbis were understanding this very profound psychological insight, which is that when we have experienced loss or when we're worried sick about someone we love or about ourselves, or when we're physically sick, we tend to retreat from community because we don't, we, we don't feel safe. We feel too vulnerable. We feel like we'll be a burden on people. We feel like nobody will understand. And so we retreat from community, but what we actually have to do is step closer to community, step closer to relationship. And the people who are walking from right to left, normally our, our instinct is when we see somebody coming toward us who's in pain, we retreat from their pain because we don't want to catch divorce. We don't want to catch the illness. We don't want to catch the vulnerability, especially after traumatic loss. There's this, there's this reverberative trauma where, you know, God forbid someone in my community loses someone in a traumatic way, the closer I am to them, the more I realize that I also am not going to live forever and neither are my loved ones. And I too could be experiencing this loss. So we want to pull away from the people who are in pain, but the ritual forces us not to look away, but to look to them, to see them in their pain, to ask them a question, which is an invitation to relationship. And then to offer a blessing when we hear them and 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 hope that that they will somehow be able to find some kind of either healing or strength or resilience or somehow uncover blessing through their through their struggle and that actually that is the work of the visit to the temple mount you go to the sacred place not to do anything else but that only literally to see each other so the big question of the book <laughs> is in this time of loneliness, social alienation, isolation, fierce division and polarization, when we don't even know how to look to each other anymore, how can we find our way to one another, enjoy 
in sorrow and in solidarity? How can we look at each other and not run away from the pain or from the joy? Because we also do that. I speak about that in chapter one. And as individuals and also as collectives, because can my people look at your people and not be afraid of your pain, but instead see your humanity? So it's a very personal journey, but it's also a collective muscle that we're trying to work. So many times when people are saying, how can I respond to my child if there's hurting? Or so many times when kids experience a loss or they have a friend who experienced a loss, everybody's kind of like, okay, well, don't bring it up. That's kind of what we're raising. Right. We raise people, let's not bring it up. And so you just kind of get into this rhythm of seeing that an appropriate response to someone's suffering is to leave them be. Mm. And what you just described, and also the interpretation of the understanding of the purpose of something that seems so, if memory serves in my childhood from reading those kinds of things and being in like rabbinics class and thinking, this is so boring. That is the most profound understanding and explanation for the purpose of something that I once would have thought was so rule-oriented and mundane Mm -hmm. and is so utterly profound. It's just profound. And so I wonder, even just with what you said, how it can shift culturally, how we talk about responding to joy and pain. And now a quick break. And I know it's a little hard because there's not one moment in this episode that feels like you could take a break. But we got to do an ad for my sponsor, who's so awesome, Caraway. And here's the thing. You know that every time I talk about this, I am self-deprecating because I'm not a good cook, but I am inspired to cook because I have such great caraway pans. And I had my resolution to learn three new recipes. And I did. Now, I am not saying anybody is particularly into them yet, but I am working on it. And I have one big caraway pan that is non-stick, non-toxic, easy cooking, and it's big enough for me to do one pan cooking, which let me tell you, this was the thing that I wanted to learn how to do. It was just like throw a bunch of different things into the pan that you think are like multi-pans that you have to clean all the time and no, and it's non-stick. So it's easily cleanable and no toxic materials, no hard to pronounce chemicals, just really attractive, modern cookware, chemical-free, and easy to clean, easy to store. Now it's just getting better at cooking. Visit caraway.com slash humans to take advantage of this limited time offer for 10% off your next purchase. This deal is exclusive for our listeners, so visit carawayhome.com slash humans or use the code humans at checkout. Caraway, non-toxic cookware made modern. For over 70 years, Mustela has been helping parents care for their families with clean and gentle skin care that's respectful of people and the planet. With decades of dermatologic research and ethically sourced natural ingredients behind the formulas, you can feel good about what you're putting on your baby's skin. Mustela is a French family-owned brand, proud to be B Corps certified, and baby skincare expert, Mustela's key ingredient is avocado. 
It's just so good for your skin. It hydrates the skin. And Mustela uses an average of 97% natural ingredients in their products. And they have an organic family line, which is so cool because they didn't even have that when I was having my babies. I love the smell of Mustela because it just reminds me of like just deliciousness and babies. And, and, and you can use that great skincare for yourself too. It's such a nostalgic smell and it smells so clean and fresh. So visit M-U-S-T-E-L-A-U-S-A.com and use the code HUMANS at checkout for 15% off your first order. That's M-U-S-T-E-L-A-U-S-A.com and use the code HUMANS at checkout for 15% off your first order. Shortly after I rediscovered this text and had this realization about here the intersection between science and spirituality that the rap, I mean, really the rabbis understood psychology on some very profound level. This this young guy came to my office. He was this young kind of hipster Jew and his father died very suddenly and tragically. And he came to my office about two weeks later. He was reeling. He was really struggling. He needed an anchor for his grief. And his friends suggested to him, why don't you try saying mourner's Kaddish? Cause he's Jewish and we have this mourner's prayer and it's kind of weirdly infiltrated, you know, like popular media. Also it was, you know, in the final scene of Homeland, you have like, you hear the words, these kind of ancient words in Aramaic and nobody understands what they mean today, but it's, it's, it feels like this prayer has some meaning to it. So people had suggested to him that he say it, and he made the mistake of looking at the translation and seeing what the words translate to. And it's something like glorified and magnified and sanctified be thy holy name. And he just was livid. I mean, he was so upset that the one tool that our tradition offers us is this very, you know, like impenetrable prayer in a language none of us speak and with a theology that, you know, that he could not abide. And I sat with this guy for an hour in my office and I tried to give him all my best explanations of what this prayer could mean and how it could be meaningful. And it's connecting us not only, it's connecting our own individual suffering to the suffering of, you know, over the course of generations, it's both horizontal and it's vertical. And you know, kind of in the way that we try to build resiliency with our children by by helping them understand what the way that suffering happens and that this moment is your unique moment, but also other people have experienced similar things and that might help you feel comfort. Anyway, he w- he didn't buy any of it and he was getting increasingly agitated and he ultimately walked out of my office and I had one of those moments where, you know, you just feel like a total failure and I spent the next six months struggling with it and thinking, what should I have told him? What should I have told him? And then one day I was in Shabbat services and I opened up the prayer book and I saw Mourner's Kaddish in this totally different way. And I realized what's actually happening in this prayer is that a person with a broken heart is standing up in a room saying, my heart is broken. And an entire community of people are saying, amen, I see you. And then they're saying, I'm really scared because I lost someone I love and I don't even know what life will look like without them. And the community says, amen. And then they say, like, I don't even know what to do with myself. I spent the last three years taking care of him before he died. And the community says, amen. 
And like again and again and again, the community responds to a person's articulation of their pain by just saying, we see you, we see you. And I realized that actually this is, it's about the choreography of putting a person who's in pain in a context of care and saying, you're hurting right now, but you are not alone. And you will say this prayer again and again and again throughout the time of brokenheartedness. And the community will simply be here not to fix you, not to repair you, but just to sit with you in your pain until you are ready to transition to the next stage of grieving. And you know, as you're doing it, that one day you will no longer be grieving and other people will be grieving and you'll be saying amen to them. And that this in some ways is the greatest gift that we can give each other is just the ability to say amen to each other's pain, to each other's joy, right? To say, I, I see you where you are. And I, I read from Lucy Hone, this resiliency teacher who I'm sure you, you know, are familiar with. And, and she says, resilient people understand that shit happens, right? Like we get part of what builds resiliency is that we understand that pain is part of the human condition and we don't shy away from the reality of human suffering. And since we engage pain, since we show up at somebody's house after they lose a loved one with a lasagna, or we call somebody when they're in the hospital and say, can I come visit you because you just came out of surgery? Since we don't run away from it, but we engage it, then it doesn't mean that it won't happen to us. But when it does happen to us, we have a kind of muscle that helps us understand that what is happening to us is part of the the, the kind of collective narrative of trial and triumph that happens in the human community. And I'm so struck that these ancient rabbis intuited that. That I mean, they didn't understand the science of it, but they intuited the science of it. I think. And they were right. And and it is the science of it. I mean, even if you are having even if you're looking at a struggling adolescent, we want to fix. We want to fix. We want to fix. Right, right. And the gift of learning the muscle memory, as you articulated before, about just saying, I see you. Right. I am here is so deeply powerful. And I I never understood. And again, like for this is not up for Jews to read, this is for everyone to read. But it, I find it interesting, having grown up with a Jewish education, that I have never connected the dots mm. between my training in psychology and the these beautiful traditions because they were not explained to me in this way, or I, I wasn't ready to hear them in this way. Who knows? But the idea of understanding you are not alone, mm. you are supported, you don't need to be fixed. And also this is temporary and also it's not. And all of these things, I'm, I, I guess I'm just taken aback that this could be so ancient and so modern and scientific at the same time. Yeah, I have t- two things I want to say about that. One, I feel I wrote this book in a, in a different mindset and in a different reality than the book is emerging into the world in. One, because my father died just before High Holy Days this year. And thank you. And he was amazing. And I miss him a lot. And I wrote the book as a caregiver and as a person who, by training and by character, 
like just by design, I sort of, I, I look to see how I can be helpful. I want to help. I want to take care of people. I now read the book as a person who's on the other side. I wrote the book as someone who walks into the sacred space and turns to the right and keeps my eyes out for who needs a hug and who needs help and who needs an amen. I, I read the book now as somebody who's standing up in the room every single, you know, every single day saying, the words of the mourner's Kaddish and knowing that the community will say amen. You know, I, I feel like, and, and I was very, I was terrified because when, because I had closed the manuscript, having written the book from a different vantage point. And I went into, I stepped into the sound booth to read the audiobook in November. And it was the first oh. time I was opening the book and just given where my heart was because of my father and where the world was. And, you know, wow. and I, because where the Jewish community was at that, you know, at that time and now, and where the world was, I, I was worried. What if the book speaks to a, a world that's gone? And what I realized is that I, it's rooted in ancient wisdom. It's not rooted in a wisdom of the moment. And so of course it works. Of course, like the, the idea that we need to root ourselves in community of care and concern is an eternal truth. That's not a timely truth. It happens to speak to this moment very powerfully. And I realized it even speaks to this moment more powerfully than the moment when I wrote it. So all of that I'm, you know, kind of, I'm relieved by on a personal level, but I also, one of the stories in one, I I call one of the chapters bearing witness, not witness, but with, and so I first heard this term from my friend, Christopher, Christopher and Genji lost their beloved son, Charlie. And I know, you know, them, the family and Charlie was this just exquisite human in the world, utterly brilliant. And it was a devastating freak accident. And in speaking with Christopher, you know, over the many months afterwards, he said that the the most frustrating part of being a mourner who's experienced traumatic loss for him was that people were always trying to come in and make it better for him, distract him from the pain, like help him heal. Everyone wants him to heal. What will healing look like for you? And he said he he attached to this phrase of bearing witness. Like, I don't want you to fix me. I just want you to be with me. I just don't want you to leave me alone in the dark. And when he shared this with me, I remembered this story. And it's actually, this is a pretty well-known story from the Talmud about a rabbi, Rabbi Yochanan, who in his life has experienced a horrific loss. And he actually lost 10 children, like this epic, epic loss and his parents. And Rabbi Yochanan, maybe because of all the loss that he's experienced, becomes this kind of magical healer where he can, he walks into the room with people who are unwell and he can lift them up out of their pain. And in the Talmud, they tell the story again and again of Rabbi Yochanan comes and he lifts them up. But then there's one episode where he goes to the bedside of a friend and colleague of his and the friend is unwell and he tries to lift the friend up and the friend doesn't get up with him. And the room is just encased in darkness. The friend is surrounded by darkness and his magic isn't working, basically. His, you know, supernatural healing power. And, you know, he he finally realizes that he's kind of befuddled because he doesn't understand why it doesn't work. I know how to pull people out of their pain. And so finally he starts asking him a series of questions. Are you, you know, are you in the darkness because 
you feel like you haven't learned enough Torah. Well, that's okay because you, you, what you've learned means something. Are you in the darkness because you feel like you haven't accumulated enough like material wealth? Are you in the darkness because you haven't loved enough? And he, he's asking all these questions, but then he's answering all the questions and he's not listening. And finally his friend's like, I'm in the darkness because I'm going to die and you're going to die and we're all going to die. And it stops Rabbi Yochanan in his tracks. And he just, they both burst into tears, these two great men. And he sits down on the bed next to his friend and they just weep together. And it's like the most tender, beautiful story because ultimately that's what his friend needed. He didn't need his superhero friend, you know, the great healer to come in and lift him up and make him better. He just needed someone to sit down with him and weep because we're all going to die. And it's okay. It's okay that it's not okay. Right. And so I like, so, so the idea is, can we find a way to show up for one another in the dark and not try to bring the light? And, you know, I, I like Chris, Charlie's mother, Genji said to me once that someone literally wrote to her, a friend from college after Charlie's death and said, you just need to cheer up. And so you like, because, and so what's going on there? Like the person's not trying to be callous. They're actually trying to help, but it's, in other words, my grief is debilitating for you. And so I need you to just cheer up so that the world feels less off balance. And the, the wisdom, the ancient wisdom is don't, I don't need to be healed. I just need to be supported and held. I need someone to say, Amen. And by the way, Elisa, not amen once. It's amen, but amen, but amen, but amen. Meaning, like when somebody's suffering, we don't just show up once, you know, with one lasagna. It's like we show up and then we call and we check in and then we check in again and then we show up at the house again. And that because it takes time to recover from grief and from illness and from loss and from loneliness, it doesn't take one attempt to pull somebody out of the dark. It's just, it's an expression of ongoing love and support until a person is ready themselves to take a step, to, to take another step toward, toward healing. And for some kinds of loss, there's never going to be full recovery and healing. And, and then we have to learn how to like live in the dark with somebody and just be their companion, just be with them. How do you know how to bring that into your life? If somebody's, you know, a person who feels like, cheer up, how do you balance being present? and not trying to fix with being able to sometimes laugh or have permission to mm-hmm. have a range of feelings during the dark times. How do you learn that? How do you learn how to exercise that muscle? Yeah, it's a great question. I One of the chapters is called Grieve and Live. And it starts with the story of a tragic loss that happened in our community. A small child died in a horrible accident. And it, it was completely upending. And the family, we when I went to the funeral and then Shiva, the family said, you know, we'll come on Saturday so that we can say Kaddish to services. You know, and I thought, okay, we'll make the space for them to say, of course, like, well, the community will be here to hold them. But it was the bar mitzvah of this really delicious little boy And he worked so hard and he was so excited and he just like, 
he was like the kind of kid who dreamt his whole life of his bar mitzvah. Like all he wanted was to be lifted in a chair and like, you know, read Torah and give them and then lift in a chair. Okay. So then I thought, oh my God, this poor kid, like every, I mean, there was a massive reverberative trauma in the community after this death. And I thought this poor kid, like he deserves joy also. And this community deserves our presence and their sorrow. And I remember that they showed up that Shabbat and we, I mean, we were literally holding the deepest sorrow and the greatest joy in the same room, in the same moment. And I thought, are the wa- like, are the walls themselves of this building strong enough to hold this much pain and this much joy at once? And the walls held up and our hearts held up and we cried and we danced at once. Like we were just in this deep, beautiful, emotional, sorrowful joy and joyous sorrow. And I, ju- I was so struck by it. And so So in the chapter, I look at another two rabbinic stories. Both of them are responses to the catastrophe of the destruction of the temple and then the exile from the land, which was catastrophic at the time. I mean, people didn't, it it wasn't clear that Judaism would survive after the exile and destruction. It's almost like the closest way for us to understand it is like a post-Holocaust level trauma, And they were trying to grapple with how do I hold this much sorrow in the world for what happened? And so basically the people were becoming ascetics. They stopped drinking wine. They stopped eating meat. They stopped eating. People didn't want to eat altogether. And there's a rabbi who basically comes to them saying like, well, then you might as well stop living altogether. If you're going to deny yourselves all of these luxuries in life, all of the joy in life, you may as well stop living altogether. And he says, this makes no sense. Instead, what you should do is you should live and you should live a bountiful, beautiful life. You should fall in love. You should try to you know, make art and make babies and make music and live and love and build homes, but leave one tiny patch of paint off the outside of your home. So that every time you walk into your beautiful new home with your beautiful family, you see that something's missing because this horrible catastrophe has unfolded and is still in many ways unfolding. So live, but leave off one piece of jewelry when you go out to the, you know, to the, to the dance and leave one piece of food out of the feast. So you're always aware of the absence, but the overwhelming response to death is life. The overwhelming response to loss is putting more love into the world. And then a couple of generations pass and there's another moment where now the, you know, these two rabbis kids are getting married and it's this huge celebration and everyone's dancing and singing and it's wonderful. And one of the rabbis is like, just takes this glass, this really expensive glass and smashes it to the ground and the music stops and they're like, what's going on? And he said, like, you're dancing with reckless abandon. Like it's as if this catastrophe hadn't happened at all. And don't detach yourself so much from human suffering that you are no longer part of this, like this network of humanity that's both about pain and also about joy. And that's the origin of the ritual of breaking a glass under the wedding canopy. Because it's like, don't forget, even in this moment of your greatest joy, that there's someone right over there who just suffered through a terrible loss. Like, I mean, even at the actual wedding ceremony in our small circles of beloveds, there are always people who are grieving who are at our wedding and they're always, someone just got broken up with, right? Someone's marriage is falling apart while your marriage is coming to, your greatest dream is coming to fruition. So 
How do you remain aware of the pain while also embracing the imperative that we experience joy? And the answer is the walls are strong enough to hold joy and pain. Our hearts are capacious enough to hold joy and pain at the same time. We don't actually have to choose. And so we can go out and have a beautiful celebration and have a great meal and also be aware of what's going on in the news right now. And we can still celebrate our birthdays and we can still sing and listen to music. And we must actually, we must choose joy because otherwise we will drown in the sorrow. And the rabbis are saying like, you you have to find a way to hold the joy even amidst the pain and to hold the pain even amidst the joy. Oh my God. I literally had, I did that ritual. I did not know that story. I'm so curious because I do feel that being able to understand, again, the science maps to this as well, but understanding the dialectic that there can, you can hold two opposing experiences and truths and feelings in the same heart or more. But I wonder, and I'm, I've always wondered this, but now I extra wonder it, how much of this, just from a developmental perspective, how much of this do we bake into our children's lives mm. over the years so that they can have this capacity and also not shrivel up in anxiety? One of my kids, when when she was little, she used to have these massive tantrums, like 45-minute epic meltdowns. And it, I realized at some point that they lasted for 45 minutes. Like we'd time them and we're like, oh, that's interesting. So we got another 25 minutes left. And so at one point I, I like I started to say to her, can we bypass the 45-minute tantrum? Because you're going to get to the end of it and we're all going to be just exhausted like we know, we know the pattern now. And I realized we could not bypass the tantrum because something needed to come out of her in that time. Like she needed to express her grief, her agony, her confusion, whatever it was. And it just needed to come out in tears and screams. And sometimes at some point we, like we learned, we could safely tell her like, go in, you can go into, sit in your bathroom or on your bed right now and come out in 45 minutes. Cause we know, like, we know that you'll be out and you're going to want something to eat. And like, you know, so what she needed actually was for us to understand that that needed to pour out of her instead of us trying to shortcut the pain. Like our, like, like our friend who's saying, I don't want you to fix my grief. I just want you to be with me in my grief. And at some point when I realized that as a parent, I didn't feel any more the pressure to like quiet my kid. I felt like, oh, maybe I can even, I can even sit in the room with her and even do some work while she's having her tantrum or, or do the dishes or organize because, because she's just going through the thing that she needs to go through. And I'm just here helping her feel safe while she's going through it. So I do think that that applies to our children. I think that they need to know that they're safe to experience an emotional upheaval that will be, we will be with them. We're not going to be scared away by the range of their emotions, you know, and that that's what love, like, that's what love means. I'm just going to be here. And at some point she grew out of her tantrums and she doesn't experience that anymore, but she absolutely sometimes needed to scream and cry for 45 minutes. So I don't know if from a parenting expert, you would say that that was good parenting or bad, but for our kid, that's like ultimately I, what worked. <laughs> well, 
as a parenting expert, I would say what works for your child is what was the right thing and also, and for you, but from a scientific perspective, that's co-regulation. Like you didn't allow your nervous system to say, I can't handle this. And over time, she was able to learn. I'm sure they, you know, they didn't go from 45 minutes to zero overnight. But over time, she learned that the the safe grown-ups in her life weren't ruined over those feelings that she was having because right. they weren't dangerous. So as from the perspective of developmental science, that mm-hmm. is the thing that I do think grows that muscle versus panicking right. and off every solution you can to stop the feelings that just needed to come out. That's mm-hmm. a beautiful example of science and spirituality, or maybe it was just like your personal m- parenting. <laughs> <laughs> but it aligns with the book. To hit a line. And then the, uh, the, I mean, the other piece of this is that I don't think we need to teach children how to hold joy and sorrow at the same time. I think they know how a lot of, most kids, I think, know how to do it. It's, it's we, the grownups who are uncomfortable with it. And so, for example, I will often yeah. hear from parents who will say like, I don't know what to do. Like we're at Shiva for this person in the family and this kid just wants to go play basketball or he just wants to spend time on his phone doing a video game or he's in the room laughing with his friends. Is he a psychopath? And I'm like, no, he's just a human. He's a person, totally. Who also lost his grandparent and also wants to play with his friends and have fun right now. And it's okay. And so like really the kid is saying, I'm sad about grandpa dying And I'm also excited because I have a new friend and we like playing together. And so that child is holding joy and pain at once and might go back and forth, you know, and might even be holding a little bit of the pain while playing basketball and holding a little bit of the, like the memory and the excitement of that video game or whatever, you know, while, while sitting in the service grieving and it's okay. And so I think that a lot of kids actually naturally know how to do this. And then it's kind of beaten out of them because it's not appropriate, you know? And so what I, like, what I try to say to people all the time is there's a reason why we cry at baby namings, you know, because often like in our, in at least in Ashkenazi tradition, we name people after loved ones who've died. And I invite, you know, the new parents to write something about their loved one who died and then to share it. And often we cry when we're talking about it. So we're at this moment of great joy and we're weeping. And we often laugh at at funerals and at Shiva Minyanim, not in a callous way, but we remember the hilarious, ridiculous, you know, bizarre things that the people we love did. And it makes us laugh. And there's something biochemical that's happening there that you understand that I don't. I I understand it from a spiritual perspective, like our hearts need to laugh in order to fully express our grief. And we need to cry in order to fully express our joy. And, And I think that that's very natural and very human. And the way to sort of help our kids understand that that's okay is for us to understand it ourselves. And to just like to say, it's okay, this is very natural that we're experiencing this kind of grief and this kind of joy. And in fact, let's embrace it. Let's not be ashamed of it. And I'll tell you, Elisa, there's one of the stories that I share in the book is about my beloved friend, Shifra, who's this beautiful, badass feminist New Yorker, who I bet some of your your listeners know, and a very, very dear friend of mine. And she 
fell in love with the most wonderful man. And they had this beautiful, beautiful, like later in life love. And they were supposed to live the rest of their lives together and, you know, die in old age, but he got cancer and it was very quick and really terrible. And he died and, and she, she realized as she was grieving this, this person, and she was kind of cheated, like she was cheated those, you know, sunset years with him. And she realized that the reason she fell in love with him was because he was a person who experienced so much joy and gave the world so much joy. He was hilarious. He loved his friends. He was always telling stories. Like he was, you know, kind of the life of the party. And then all of a sudden she's bereaved and she's in these grieving rituals that like she's expressing the sadness. And she realized that it wasn't doing justice to who he was in the world. And so she decided that through her whole year of grieving, she was going to grieve through, through 18 minutes of joy a day. And so she literally set her timer for 18 minutes a day and forced herself to be free to experience joy whether that joy was from like turning on the music and dancing alone in the apartment or walking through nature or having a drink with a friend, like just doing something that would feel, that would feel joyful in his memory and in his honor. And so I love like her joy was an expression of her grief. It just didn't look the way that we imagine that grief would look like. And that's such a powerful lesson. So I include that in the book in that I have at the end of the book, there's you know, there's, there's a series of spiritual practices, one for each chapter, because I wanted people to kind of be able to operationalize yeah. lessons and, you know, the teachings they're, they're, they're sort of written to feel like, like sermons and then all together they form, they, they stand alone, but together they form one kind of super sermon, not in a bad, not a sermon in a bad way. I mean, a sermon in a good way. Yeah. So <laughs> in my, in my field, a sermon in a good way, I hope. And, but in the end, there are these practices and I put Schiffer's story in as a practice because I feel, I feel like we can set the clock for 18 minutes a day and, ex and, and allow ourselves to experience joy, especially, especially when our hearts are broken, especially when the world feels so heavy and so full of sorrow. And so we're so full of moral confusion and, you know, existential loneliness and so much pain <sighs> to say like, you know what? Also, it's my partner's 50th birthday. You know, it's New Year's Eve. It's my kid's, you know, 10th birthday, double digits. You know, let's do it. And if we don't give ourselves the space to do that, how much can we actually survive? We need the joy. We need the joy to fill us up and, re you know, replenish us and nurture our spirits so that we have the strength to keep going and being so present to the, to the pain that also needs to be tended to in the world. So this book has practical. How do you say practical practices? <laughs> I think you just said it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because you're right. We we need to operationalize these massive ideas. And also they're very scary. It's it's interesting to me to make a decision as to whether or not I want to avoid a feeling <laughs> or I want to understand it. But this world has, I've just I've been observing myself and others saying. I can't do this anymore. I can't read this anymore. I can't watch this mm -hmm. anymore. I can't learn about this anymore. I just, I'm getting numb because that's the only way to survive. And I just wonder in this world that we're in, how do we keep ourselves from being numb? Yeah. 
while also not being a raw nerve. And it sounds like part of that is allowing for all of it. But I am really curious. I think I really want your answer. How in this world, if the choice, if if we go into a, a freezing, you know, a fight, flight, or freeze mode with all of the stress coming at us, and stress, I think, is a light word for it, how do we how do we not go numb or sit in sorrow or avoid? What is the secret sauce there, Rabbi? So I often think about Paul Slovic's work. He did the Rokia studies years ago. I don't know if you know him. He's a professor and a psychology professor. And this, so the Rokia studies work, he took these a, a photograph of a young girl named Rokia from Mali, and he showed it to students on campus. And he asked, you know, would they give $5 to help save this hungry child? And it was like 100% of the people said, of course I will. Right. And then he zoomed out. So it was Rokia sitting next to her brother, who was also starving. And they said, would you give $5 to support these two starving children? And the numbers went down by half. And then he zoomed out more. And it was like the two of them surrounded by 100 starving children. And would you give to help these children? And like almost nobody gave. And and so he calls it psychic numbness. And Adam Grant had this interesting piece about this, you know, just this week about, yeah. you know, compassion fatigue and learned helplessness. And I write about it in the book as think, talking about vicarious trauma, about mm-hmm. what happens to the people who enter that sacred space and turn to the right day after day after day, year after year, and their job or their, their nature leads them to see the people who are broken and walking toward them, who everyone else wants to avoid. Like, at what point do you just say, I can't take it anymore. And what happens if it's not one person at a time, but thousands of people at a time who are broken at some point, like you can't see the pain anymore. And so what, like, how do you not numb your heart? And my, my answer to this is that we actually have to go back to the one that we have to zoom back in and say, I'm going to start with this person because I can't actually take on the feeling for every single broken person in the world, but I can take on the feeling for you. And I can see looking at you that you're not okay right now, whether it's because in ancient times, you're literally walking in the other direction or in our time, I can just, I see you in the supermarket. I can just feel it like you are not okay right now. And I could just as easily grab my you know, my juice and leave, or I can stop and say, Hey, are you, okay? are you okay? Did something happen? You know, do you want to talk? What happened? And, and so the answer is choose to start with one and then rehumanize that person and yourself with the one. And then you like that interaction will strengthen us to then go to the next and to the next, because we can't do everything, but that doesn't free us from the responsibility to do something. Another, you know, ancient rabbinic teaching, right? We cannot do everything, but that doesn't mean we're free to do nothing. And so so I think that it especially in this time when we are completely just I mean there, there's like body blow after body blow every day in the news and in our among our friends and our extended circles and at some point we have to just say I'm creating like third way spaces, spaces where I can just encounter the humanity of another person 
and not be overwhelmed or bombarded by the massive amount of human suffering, by the stories, by the false binaries, by the cruelties that human beings are throwing at each other. So I I think it's about starting with the one, which gives us the strength to re-engage. There's one more thing I want to say here, though, which is I also, I, I think that it's in the best interest of unjust forces for us to disengage from the world. Mm-hmm. I think that when good people disengage, that's when tyrants can take power. And so it's really important that we engage, but we have to engage tenderly and wisely. And so we don't have to engage on social media. We don't have to read every single post. We don't have to read the comments. One of my teachers once said to me, never read below the line. We don't have to see the worst of humanity. We can choose like to only read, you know, like publications that are verified and you know, edited and, you know, only read articles that are peer reviewed, only, you know, only hear voices that are actually trustworthy voices. We should encounter ideas that challenge our thinking and that make us feel uncomfortable and read articles that make us cry because the reality of the world should sometimes make us cry. But we don't have to see every cruel thing that any lunatic puts out into the world. And I, I feel like this is also an act of self-love building some guardrails around that. Like we don't, we don't have to see everything because when you, when you're exposed to everything, you miss Rokia who's sitting in the middle of this, you know, of this group of children and needs our love and needs our $5. And we can't give it to her if we completely break down. And we also can't then go love our children. If we're I was completely broken down, right? Right. We, we can't, How do you go home? We can't sit at the dinner table and listen to the story that our kid tells us about being cut from the volleyball team and actually be empathic toward our own children and toward our partners and toward our friends if we're completely shattered because we just read and saw and were exposed to a kind of human cruelty and human suffering that the body cannot metabolize. And so I think it's important for us to fortify, which doesn't mean escape the world. It's not escapism. It's actually being like, it's an act of self-love to, to filter what comes to us and what doesn't what someone, I, someone once described it to me as, you know, it's like putting up a screen door, right? Like, oh, I love that. right. It's not, you don't close the door, right. but you, if you open it, all the mosquitoes are going to fly in. So you put up a screen door. So you get the light and you get the air and you don't get the mosquitoes. Right. I can't remember where so where that metaphor came from, but somebody wise shared that with me recently. And I love that. And I feel like we have I to screen door our access to the, you know, to what's going on in the world so that we can protect our hearts. Because we have to be in for the long haul. We cannot disengage from our loved ones and from the world. We just can't. The world needs us to be human. Oh my God. I don't know how you should be like pl- like just walking around like some crazed person that just goes door to door. And it'd be healed. The world would be just done. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.